you have your copy of the Scriptures, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I don't know if you have realized this. We live in a day and an age where truth is under assault. Now, you may have used that word in a sentence this week, but while we still use the word truth to describe how we feel about something, American men and women no longer believe that when a thing is said to be true, that this means, therefore, that it is true always and forever. Rather, when we say that something is true, it might be true for some people, perhaps for today, perhaps not for tomorrow. It's true love right now, five years down the road, when divorce papers are signed, there wasn't much that was true about that love at all. And as we listen to the Apostle John, he has a very different conception of truth. Now, as, as a dad of two girls, I will confess, I don't know a thing about braiding hair. But I understand that when you braid rope, you make it stronger. And like a braided cord of rope, John has interwoven three special tests by which we as Christians can test and evaluate our claims to having fellowship with God. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at the moral test of obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commands. That's the first test. The second test is the social test of love. No one who hates his brother can claim to be in the light. This morning, we have the chance to look at his third test, the moral test of obedience, the social test of love, and the doctrinal test of truth. What do we believe about Jesus Christ? And so the truth is that the Christian idea, the Christian idea of truth is a battleground. And this morning, you find yourself on one side or the other. You either find yourself on the side of the kingdom of man or you find yourself more on the side of the kingdom of God. And sad but true, but even within the walls of our churches are people who do not believe the truth, yet are glad to claim the name of Christ. And so this morning, does the Bible provide any help for how a Christian can stay in the fight in such a convoluted age? And the truth is, I believe God's Word does speak clearly on this issue. And so three points this morning. The first is that true Christians stay in the fight by building up a love for their faith family. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. John says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, before you think I forgot where I left off last week, I know we talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. God wants his people to have a love that is not so exclusive that it doesn't accept people who don't look like us. God's family, according to this passage, has children, young people, 
and older people, children, young men, and fathers. Uh, let's forget the gender distinctions here. He's putting together categories of people at different levels of spiritual maturity. And it's dangerous in a, truth, in a church when uh, people who have been in church for a long time perhaps unintentionally look down on their nose at the children of the church. Not the, not the kids, not the infants, but people who are new to their faith. What happens if a person comes into a church and, and doesn't know how church people dress? I've heard of people telling people, you need to go home and get changed and you can come on back. May that never happen here. May we have a love for babies in the faith. And the point is this. If, if the Bible says that love can cover a multitude of sins, don't you think that love can certainly cover over some of our generational differences? We have got to be a church that develops a love for our faith family. And so here's a question for you. I'm just going to invite you to think about this for a second. If, if love is in a faith family, it's tangible. Not love in your family, your biological family. Love exists in your faith family. What would that look like? You'd come to church. You'd find a way to do something meaningful to help your church's mission in the community. We just had our offering. You'll find it not a get-to but it got to when it comes to giving to God's, God's house, supporting his ministries, supporting our influence in the community. You'll sing loud. It's been a great encouragement over the last couple of weeks to hear how we sing when we get together. When love is in a faith family, you can tell. You invite people to come to worship with you. It's not that you're embarrassed. This is your habit on Sunday mornings. But you're eager to give to people the love and the support that you find in a faith family to other people as well. Now the problem is how we define love for the church has changed fairly drastically from generation to generation. My grandparents, when you talked about consistent church attendance, well to my grandparents that meant every single Sunday. Nowadays, what's consistent church attendance look like? Two out of four weeks? Listen, I don't mean to go to meddling in my first point here. But the truth is, uh, we have a lot of free time that we use, and we find all kinds of excuses to not be in church. The point is not where you actually find yourself. If you, and uh, all of you that will listen to this CD that happened to be at the beach this weekend, um, this is not intended for you on Labor Day weekend. The point is when you're not at church, do you really want to be there? I'll tell you what really proves the point. When you are excluded from being at church, because of illness or uh, some kind of protracted family situation, you know it because you miss it. And so when there is love, it affects the way that church likes. Now, here's a good illustration of kind of what I'd like to see. When you get together for a family reunion, there's usually a person who has their camera handy to do what? Snap a photo of the whole entire family. Four generations, five generations. The problem today is if we were going to take a photo of our faith family on any given Sunday, we wouldn't be able to do it. Is Northside Baptist Church ever gathered where we're all present? We even know now we have to do announcements two or three weeks in a row just to hope to get the word out to everyone. Okay, you follow where I'm tracking? When we come together for worship, it is a faith family reunion. And when love is in effect... 
it'd be great to be able to take a family reunion photo and know that you've got the entire family in the picture, wouldn't it? It'd be a great thing. Now, there's a a particular reason why I'm going back to this text uh, from last week. We talked about how when, when love is in a church... That is, a, that is a testimony to a lost and dying world. Jesus says, all people will know you are my disciples. How? By your love. Not by your worship service, not by your missions giving, by your love. There's a lot of other important things, but he says, by your love, that will be a testimony to a watching world. But we also said one of the benefits is that when you are loving, not only will the world know that we're Christians, we will know we're Christians when God has put a supernatural love into us. But here's kind of the reverse point. This, this section, verses 12 through 14, is a hinge, a pivot point in 1 John chapter 2. Not only does it help us personally know that we're Christians by the way we're demonstrating love to our faith family, but when you track into the, the remaining passage that we'll look at this morning, the church protects you. Now, have you ever thought about how the church provides spiritual protection for you? Now, you might feel good when you get out of here. Man, I, I feel like we went to church today. But have you thought about how the church protects you? Well, that's our second point. If our first point is that true Christians stay in the fight by building up a love for their faith family, our second point is that true Christians stay in the fight By looking out for faith's enemies. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, But the one who does the will of God lives forever. A sub-point under this, when it comes to uh, looking out for faith's enemies, the first thing we've got to watch for is that we do not devote ourselves to this world. That we do not devote ourselves to this world. In verse 15, when he says, do not love the world, when he says love, he's not talking about a mushy-gushy emotion that you have for the things of this world. Oh, I just love this world. When he says love, he's talking about what are you committed to? What are you most devoted to? And he's saying a Christian cannot be devoted to this world and devoted to the Father. There is a command not to love the world. And we have to ask ourselves, John 3.16 one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. Is, is this passage in 1 John contradicting what John said in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. And yet here, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world. When we use the world, word world in the New Testament, there are at least three different ways that the word world is used in the New Testament. First, it's referred to uh, what Pastor Scott referred to as creation. The earth, the cosmos, the universe. That is one of the meanings of the word world. The word world can also mean the human race in general. That's the meaning in John 3.16. When, 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 when God says, 
when John says about God that God so loved the world, he wasn't necessarily talking about the created order, trees and mountains and sky and stars. He was talking about people. God loves the human race in general. But third, and most important for our context here, is that the world can mean an evil system that stands in opposition to God. So when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, and 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world, there's no contradiction. They're using the word world in two different ways. That's important for us to know. Otherwise, we're going to walk out of here going, the Bible's got contradictions in it. It doesn't say the same thing. So when it comes to a Christian's attitude towards the world and not devoting themselves to the world, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to shun the world? Are we supposed to leave the world? Are we supposed to withdraw from the world? I find great instruction in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. Right before Jesus is arrested, he prays for his disciples. And listen to his prayer. Uh, John 17, verses 14 through 18. Jesus says this. He's praying to his Father. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they, Christians, are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And then listen to verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. What's a Christian's attitude towards the world? We are not supposed to withdraw. We're not supposed to flee. We're not supposed to run in the other direction. We are to engage with the world constantly being aware that there are snares and traps and pitfalls that will damage our soul if we're not aware. Now, I know we have some guys <clears throat> that hunt. I'm not going to ask you to hoot and holler, do a duck call, anything of that sort. But hunters do weird things. I'm a fan of the television show Duck Dynasty. No comments from the peanut gallery back there. <clears throat> And they're the ones that make a world-famous duck call. And uh, the father, the, ma- the patriarch of the family, has said when it's duck hunting season, I think it's like 10, 10 weeks long in Louisiana, he doesn't bathe for 10 weeks long. And he does all kinds of weird things to kind of mask his smell. I'm like, bathing would help. You want to you mask your smell. But the point is this. When you're hunting, you want to do everything possible to make your presence invisible to the prey. When Satan wants to trap a Christian, he's not going to make his temptation obvious to you. He's going to gloss it over, put bright lights, put bling on it, make it look attractive. You're going to want to play with it. It's going to be like walking through the electronics store. You just want to touch everything. You want to see how big that TV is and what this button does. Temptations are like that. And Jesus says, basically, listen, don't take them out of the world. Sanctify them and send them into the world. Make their holiness so strong that they can overcome the temptations that will naturally happen as they go through the world. You see, a Christian in the world is kind of like a boat in the water. No problem. Christian in the world, boat in the water, no problem. 
turn that around a little bit. World in the Christian, water in the boat, big problem. I don't know if you've ever been out in the middle of a lake and water starts coming in in a place that it shouldn't be, but when the boat's in the water, there's not a problem. When water gets in the boat, you better start heading for home quick. And it's the same thing with a Christian. A Christian in the world, not a problem. But the world in a Christian, a huge problem. John, John in this passage, is not in a really simple way condemning materialism per se. Listen, one of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not steal. What does that allow you to do? That allows you to own stuff, doesn't it? If you don't own anything, it's impossible for me to steal it from you. So the, the Bible condones personal property. So John is not condemning materialism. He's condemning an attitude of materialism that just wants more and more. You remember, some people say, well, you know, money, money is evil. Well, no, that's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? The love of money leads to all kinds of evil. Materialism is not the problem. Being devoted to materialism is the problem. And and John goes on in his passage, and he tells us what this love of the world looks like. He talks about three different kinds of sin. He talks about the um, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. He says that a, a Christian that is allowing himself to be tempted will succumb to this trinity of evil. The lust of the flesh. Uh, basically, uh, I, I don't know that this means simply what we think it means. Uh, the lust of the flesh is any kind of bodily abuse. Any kind of bodily abuse. From, obviously, sex, to drugs, to gluttony. Listen, when we talk about fellowship in Southern Baptists, there's typically some gluttony that's involved. <laughs> there is no restraint when it comes to the dessert bar. But the Bible... <laughs> <laughs> but does the Bible say that gluttony is a sin? Don't call out your neighbor when you're not passing on the dessert bar. Gluttony is a sin. Comfort. Oh, listen, it's great to be comfortable, isn't it? But when comfort keeps you from serving, it's a sin. Convenience is nice. Being able to sleep is nice. You know, oversleeping is a sin. The Bible says we're supposed to be active. We're supposed to be serving him. And the point here, the lust of the flesh, is not just the big sins that we think of, like prostitution, premarital sex. It is any bodily appetite that is not held in um, subjection to the lordship of Christ. Any bodily appetite. And unfortunately, as I was trying to think of an illustration, it's really dangerous to um, think long about a um, illustration for the lust of the flesh, but I thought of a city. What city epitomizes skin, food, and entertainment? Las Vegas. You got it. He talks about the lust of the eyes. Man, the lust of the eyes is a powerful sin. We see that all the way back in the book of Genesis. You'll remember when Satan came to Eve Uh, What he said, he's talking to her. And then in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw saw eyes that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, it was beautiful, and that it was desirable to make one wise, 
She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The lust of the eyes is a particular sin all throughout the Bible, certainly with Eve. Do you remember the story of Achan? Uh, during the, the conquest of the land, they were told to destroy everything at Jericho. And Achan saw this fancy robe and he saw some gold and silver and he took it and he buried it under his tent. And then when the children of Israel want to fight the next city, they lost. Overwhelmingly superior, but defeated by an inferior foe. And Joshua goes, what has happened? Why has God left us? And God says, there's sin in the camp. And Achan, because of the lust of the eyes, took to himself what was to be devoted to God. David, the man after God's own heart, is taking an evening stroll on the top of his roof. And what happens? Bathsheba, lust of the eyes. The Bible says Christians need to watch out for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And when I think of special temptations for the eyes, I think of Hollywood. Special effects. You want your movie to sell? Have some nudity in it. Let's appeal to things that tantalize our eyes. And he talks about the boastful pride of life. This is uh, any desire, inordinate desire that we have to exalt ourselves, to control situations, to bring glory to ourselves. And I love this passage from Daniel chapter 4 about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, for a pagan, had many interesting interactions with God. He had this dream that Daniel told him, Nebuchadnezzar, you are becoming proud. If you don't repent, bad things will happen. Well, Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream did not come true immediately. So we pick up in Daniel chapter 4, verse 29. uh, Beginning in verse 28, it says, All these things happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, twelve months later than what? Twelve months later from Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It didn't happen right away. A year had passed. Nebuchadnezzar goes, I'm good. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Hmm, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have, have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? What's he saying? I am the man. You want to talk about The boastful pride of life, exhibit A, Daniel 4, verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will eat grass like cattle for seven years until you recognize that the Most High, Yahweh, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God will not share his glory with another. So this morning you may say, listen, I come to church. I'm not materialistic. As a matter of fact, you can dig through that offering plate, preacher and you'll see an envelope with my name on it. Here's the thing that has destroyed me this week. You can tithe your 10%, and still be wickedly materialistic. If you think the other 90% belongs to you and you do with it whatever you want without even consulting God who gave you the money in the first place, you love the world. You're devoted to the world. So recognize 
God doesn't just own 10% of what, what you give back. He owns it all. There are two reasons uh, in our passage that are given for not devoting ourselves to the world. And I lost my place, so I've got to get back to 1 John. Here we go. <clears throat> two reasons that they give, and you see them here plainly in the Scriptures. The first one is that love for God and love for this world is incompatible. You cannot, Jesus says, serve two masters. Uh, but secondly, the second reason for the command is this. Uh, look at verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The second reason for the command is everything you see, everything you can play with, everything you can buy will not last. Why devote yourself to the world when anything you devote yourself to in the world is transient in nature? The Bible says, the Lord says, instead of settling for that, lay up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven. One of the ways that we um, continue to uh, figure out our faith's enemies is by not devoting ourselves to the world, but secondly, by shunning truth deserters, uh, the antichrists. Look at verse 18 and 19. Children, It is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it might be shown that they are all not of us. Now listen, you want to have an interesting uh, sermon series. You mention the name Antichrist, and you'll have double your attendance next week. This phrase, Antichrist, you may be surprised to find out, only occurs in John's literature. The Apostle John is the only one who explicitly uses the phrase Antichrist. It only occurs four times in Scripture, all of them in 1 John. But there are two important facts about the people talked about in these verses, verse 18 and 19. Number one, the word Antichrists is what? It's plural. Now, for some of y'all, y'all are going to have to think through your end times views. Because the Antichrist is one person, not in this passage. The Antichrists are many people. And it says they're here. You better watch out. They've deserted the truth, and they're trying to deceive you. But not only are they plural, brothers and sisters, where did these Antichrists come from? They came from the church. We have a tendency in our end times to think of the Antichrist as some revoltingly ugly pagan that no one would be tempted to follow. It's not so much that that the Antichrists in this passage are outright pagans who are vile and repulsive. They are people committed to deceit and falsehood from within the church. Verse 19 says, "They, they went out from us to prove that they were not of us. Now, this does not deny that there is a final future person who epitomizes everything. As a matter of fact, the other three occurrences of the name Antichrist all occur in the singular. But the point is that the Antichrist has many Antichrists who work for him. And so that the future person will be a substitute, counterfeit Christ, who will be as much like Jesus as it is possible for a tool of Satan to be. Why? in order that, if possible, he might even uh, uh, shipwreck the faith of the elect. That's what the Bible says. Much like these false teachers in, in John's day, they appeared to be Christian, 
But when it comes to their doctrine, uh, the devil is in the details, so to speak. These people would say, hey, listen, we're not so different from you. We only differ with you in our views about Jesus. But listen, if Jesus is God and they deny that Jesus is God, then they deny God. Plain and simple. We're merely provided with a warning here. We'll find out more about the danger of their teaching here. But John is trying to comfort his congregation that has lost members. They're devastated. These people have left their church. And he's trying to comfort them as they deal with this. Now, we have to be very careful with how we apply this. This does not mean that any person who has left Northside Baptist Church is an antichrist. One of the plural people. Sometimes when someone leaves your church and you don't understand it, it's, it, it becomes typical to vilify. Well, you know, they just, they didn't really love Jesus. They weren't, re- you can't go there. Now listen, perhaps they were immature. Maybe there was a conflict and they didn't deal with it well. And they felt like they needed to leave for that purpose. But being immature and being one of the antichrists, there's a huge gap there. He's trying to say what these people taught and what they believed was really what made them dangerous. Not that they were immature in handling conflict. So we see the third way that true Christians stay in the fight is by clinging to true truth. And in verses 18 through 27, we see some precious safeguards against this false teaching. Look at these verses with me. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now uh, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Father, in the Son, and in the Father. This is the promise which he, He Himself made to us eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. We see four sweet things that are precious safeguards for us in the battle against the world and the Antichrist. And the first we see in verse 18 and 19, which we've already looked at. We have an abiding fellowship. One of the chief marks of these false teachers is not just that they were false teachers, but they left. Verse 18 and 19 says, They went out to make it clear that they were not of us. While Antichrists break fellowship, True Christians remain in fellowship. And we understand that there is a special preservation and protection that only comes for those who love the church because God loves his bride. And a great Baptist doctrine is the perseverance of the saints. And we believe that future and final perseverance is the ultimate test of a past participation in Christ. If you claim to follow Christ 
We expect to see you at the finish line. And if something happens that you fall out of the race, then there may have been a religious experience in your past, but it was not biblical conversion. Final and future perseverance is the ultimate test of past participation in Christ. But number two, one of the things that we see that true Christians do by clinging to true truth is we absolutely confess Christ. We absolutely confess Christ. In verses 20 through 23, we see some specifics about the nature of the heresy. These false teachers, they did something kind of fun and kind of confusing. They said, yeah, well, we believe in Jesus Christ. We differ a little bit. We believe that Jesus was a man and simply a man. And when he was baptized, then the Christ spirit came down on him. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Christ spirit ascended back. And so they made a distinction between... Jesus wasn't really the Son of God in any special sense. He was a man, just like you and I, who uh, the Christ spirit descended on him at his baptism and went back up to God when he died. But God didn't really suffer. God didn't really die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross, but not Christ. Well, goodness, you really need to start dotting your I's and crossing your T's if you're going to figure out what these guys are teaching. They wanted to hedge their bet on what they taught about Christ. But for Bible-believing Christians who love and honor God's word, there, are, there is no asterisk on what we believe about Christ. There is no, see the fine print. We believe what the Bible says. We absolutely, without reservation, hold to what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. That's why Jesus and the Father are a package deal. He says here, if you deny the Son, you deny the Father. Why? The Father sent the Son to come and to bear our sins. So not only do we have an abiding fellowship, not only do we absolutely confess Christ. Verse 24, we hold to an apostolic word. Pastor Reed read the passage from Acts 2. It says that the early church devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. They didn't have the Bible back then. So they took what the apostles were teaching and they honored it as God's word. We have the benefit of those apostolic teachings collected into our 27 books of the New Testament. And so we allow the original gospel to abide in us. The gospel does not change. The gospel will not change. The packaging may look a little different as we find new ways to talk about the gospel to different people, but the message, the content will never change. We hold to a word that will steer us clear no matter what kind of circumstance we find ourselves in. But the fourth and final thing that is a safeguard for us against false teachers, we see in verses 25 through 27. And that's the truth that we have an anointing spirit. We have an anointing spirit. You have to look very closely at verse 20 and verse 27 to see in detail what this means. Verse 20 says, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. I've got to be careful with how I say this, because you're going to hear it one way, and you need to let me explain it. The false teachers that were in the church had the same apostolic word, they just didn't hold to it. The word is not enough 
to keep you safe. Because God has given two great gifts to his people. He has given his word and he has given his spirit. Have you ever wondered why, uh, perhaps when you were saved at a great revival, you are moved to the point of confession when the invitation time comes and the person sitting right next to you, nothing happens. Same message, same word, no result. Well, the spirit was working in one person and the spirit was not working in another person. The spirit takes the word and makes the word powerful in a person's life. And he's saying here, listen, these Gnostic believers, they had the word, but you know what they didn't have? They didn't have the spirit. And that's why they could walk away from the word and create their own doctrine so easily. Now, it's obvious that when he talks about this anointing in 1 John 2, the the person that he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. And it's very clear that this anointing is a teacher. It says in verse 27, the anointing, he abides in you. You don't need anyone to teach you because he will teach you. And he will teach you true truth. And just as he has taught you, live in that truth. Now, when John says you have no need for anyone to teach you, he is not um, saying we don't need Sunday school teachers anymore. We don't need preachers or pastors. What is John doing at the very moment that he says, you don't need anyone to teach you? He's teaching them. He's just saying that whenever you receive teaching that is not confirmed by the apostolic word and the anointing spirit, you run. You don't need any so-called truth that does not line up with this word and his spirit. And if it does, you stay away. John is not doing away with teachers he is telling you the evaluating standard by which you evaluate what your teachers are teaching you. So this morning, friends, oh, it, it has sadly become commonplace for church membership to fall by the wayside. There may be people here, listen, I'm still brand new. I have no idea who makes up this room. I'm trying to learn quick. But it is not uncommon for people to become perpetual visitors, but to never join themselves to a faith family. If you fall into that category, I I, want to speak to you very directly here as we conclude. There is a power and a protection that you will miss out on if you do not love God's bride the way that he says to. And the way that the Bible makes very clear that that happens is by making the commitment of membership. If you, if you refuse to be a member of a church, there is some kind of gap in our relationship where you're saying you're not willing to fully commit to this local body. That's not good. Don't be a perpetual visitor in God's house. Get adopted. Be a part of the faith family. Don't be a person that visits a church for four years just saying, well, I kind of thought I was a member. You don't get to decide. The congregation decides who's involved in membership. And my point here is not to say, listen, we just, we want y'all. It's for you. The Bible says that all of these things that are a safeguard against loving the world, against being deceived by false teachers, the greatest encouragement you will find for living for Jesus will not come outside these doors. It will come right here. There will be people who say, what'd you buy that new boat for? You loving the world or you loving the Lord? What are you doing listening to that Bible study? What are you doing listening to that preacher? I don't know that what he says kind of lines up exactly with what God's word. There's an accountability that comes when you're in 
the family of God. And so for those of you that are members here, have you ever taken the time to thank God for the protection that he provides for you through a Bible-believing church? You have been the recipient of a tremendous privilege. Have you even said thank you? If you've been a member of a church for 20, 30, 40 years, and you've never had to question the doctrine that comes out of this pulpit, you should be grateful. Because false teaching, friends, it's not just outside the church, it's everywhere inside the church. You can go to your local Christian bookstore and see junk for sale that people will say will build your faith. And it will lead you onto a highway that will lead you in a bad place. When, when a church is organized the way that God wants it to be, not only do we figure out who our enemies are, not only do we learn to love the church, we learn to cling to the truth in a new way. And so friends, my prayer for you is that your followership of God will be effective, that you will learn how to love your faith family more, that you will learn how to avoid the world, that you will learn how to cling to the truth, that you will learn how to shun false teachers, because that is the mission of God's church. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for this day, and we pray that as we think about what it means to follow you, You tell us very clearly in your word that you didn't come to save individuals. You came to build a church. And Lord, as we figure out what it means to be faithful to you in a world that doesn't believe in truth anymore, oh Lord, give us the boldness to proclaim your word with fervor, but give us the gentleness to understand that times are stranger than they used to be. Uh, People have less of a tolerance for hearing and we need to be careful with how we proclaim the truth. We don't want to be offensive. Uh, Because your message is a strong message that we are to die to self and to live unto God. So Lord, make us bold in our proclamation of the truth. Lord, make us bold, not just in preaching a message of personal salvation, but preaching a message that says God wants you to be in his family. And he doesn't just want you to be a visitor in his family. He wants you to be a member of the family. God is willing to adopt you and his people are willing to adopt you if you will simply commit to following him. And so, Lord, as we enter into this time of invitation, this time of responding to you, I pray that as we sing and as we pray, that we thank you for giving us a church that has always steered us straight and a church that is always willing to receive with open arms those that you send our way that believe in Christ and are willing to dedicate themselves to his service. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.